Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we've been uh, holding out in our respective corners of North America. How are you doing, sir? Home is good, right? Hard to be unhappy about home. Yeah. I Do like you remember the gig that fits up your nose? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a one gigabyte uh, USB key, and we were so amazed that it was one gigabyte back yes. then. At that time, I think it was 2005. Yeah, I think, I think it was right. the, the original road trip. And yeah. I had scored it from someplace in Malaysia. Right. Yeah. Some big mall or something. Yeah. And it was it was maybe the size of your thumbnail. Right. So it was smaller than a regular USB key. And it was a gig. So that was kind of a big deal. Hmm. So in the Best Buy yesterday, bought a 128 gig USB uh, stick that is like a quarter of the size of that. What? Like, it's literally the USB uh, connector is three times the size of the rest of it. Oh, my. It's at the limit where you can actually get your fingers around it when it's plugged in. It's ridiculous. Oh, man. And I swear it was $20. Well, I think that's the better no framework right there. We don't even need to, <laughs> you know, you need to so, roll the music, man. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I think that's great. 128 yeah. gigs for 20 bucks at Best Buy. Go get yeah. it, man. Yeah, and, and just tiny, tiny, tiny. Oh, and by the way, they still had room in that tiny little thing to put an LED in it. Oh, wow. So that when you're copying files, it's blinking away. But wow. Otherwise, you'd forget you had it because it's just the size of the USB port. Like, wow. It's be gone. Fantastic. It's crazy. And I'm sure there's bigger ones. That, But that one was on the shelf and it was trivial. Wow. All right. Well, I'm going to save what I was going to say for the next show. Fine, be like that. Yeah, because that was good. Should we just play people the music? Let's for the play the music, music anyway. Okay. Go ahead. Stupid, crazy music. <laughs> I know that music deep down annoys you because, yeah. you know, <laughs> people love it. People sing it to you. I know. What's up with that? I don't know. Anyway, no, there isn't a that's complete what I version. Got. That's what you got. That's yeah, what we so, got. So who's talking to us, Richard? I uh, grabbed a comment off of Mr. Siemens' last show. That was 1418, February 2017, when we talked about Conway's Law. Of course, Conway's Law focused on how organizational structures reflect what they make. You know, the point being, if you have three dev teams working on a product, you're going to end up with three feature groups. Right. So, that's what tends to happen. Got lots of comments on the show, as per normal. Mm. Uh, this one's great. This is Simon Timms's comment. By the way, Simon is a regular contributor to Humanitarian Toolbox, although I figured that out after I'd picked the comment already as one I wanted yeah, to on the show. Yeah. Thanks for your contribution, Simon. Who said? But he says, I found myself violently gesturing at the stereo in my car as I listened to this episode, <laughs> which is good because yelling at the stereo is kind of silly. It is a little silly. But Gesturing Isn't it dangerous well. when you're driving, though? Gesturing, I mean. Only if you I, take I your eyes off the road. He didn't say what he's gesturing with. Ah, right. Fair so enough. Just going <laughs> to, I'll leave that sitting there. You can look at it, you know, at your leisure. Yeah. <laughs> the whole discussion really hit home with some of the team design challenges on my current project. We have an application which is layered, much like the teams who write it. Communication inside a team flows much more easily than through team boundaries. So having software which reflects that is only logical. Yeah. Great episode. Keep them coming. It was well, brilliant. It was a great episode and, it's, and he's back. So more greatness. Uh, Simon, thank you so much for your comment. Uh, we are violently gesturing at you right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm waving. <laughs> I'm not saying what with. We're just violently gesturing. And a copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy too. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. Apparently, they all fit up Richard's nose. <laughs> yeah, I sort of thought about the old gig up the nose thing. It had more to do with the size of my nose than the size <laughs> of that gig. <laughs> oh, and by the way, Music to Code By has two new tracks now. So for Congratulations, dude. So was that 14 and 15? Yeah, so 15 tracks and the whole collection is now at, I think, a whopping 43 bucks. So it's still a great deal. Yeah, yeah. Lots yeah. of stuff. And we give it away every show. That's right. Uh, now let's bring on Mark Seaman. He was the, the voice that you heard there while we were trying to be funny. Uh, Mark helps programmers make code easier to maintain. His professional interests include functional programming, object-oriented development, software architecture, and software development in general. Apart from writing a book about dependency injection, he's also created several Pluralsight courses, videos for clean coders, and written numerous articles and blog posts about programming. He's an independent consultant, author, and conference speaker living in Copenhagen, Denmark. Welcome back, Mark Seaman. Speaking of music to code by, you were the guy who inspired me to do that. Well, thank you for having me again. And I'm happy that I could inspire someone, at least. <laughs> so, so, so that's one person. <laughs> Richard's uh, comment that he read reminded me about that show. And I hadn't sure. really thought about it until back then. But, man, that's just a brilliant observation. Right. We were talking about, uh, among us, other things back then, we were talking about flow, this this mental state where you sort of forget about, you know, the time uh, and, you know, the time just flies by. And, you know, that's the thing that programmers actually experience quite a lot. Yeah. And that's probably one of the things that we might talk about, uh, you know, in the next hour or so. Mm. That was episode 1001. That's how yeah. well that was. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Well, you know, the the observation of software representing the organizations that build it is another one of these fascinating observations. And uh, that I was, you know, I was stunned. I hadn't thought about that until Richard read the uh, comment, too. It's just fascinating. Oh yeah, so you you tend to forget about those things until they they sort of pop up. Uh, but then once you start seeing them, they, you just see it everywhere. Just um, you can't unsee it. it. Basically, this one of the some of the other comments that you see there on, on that show is that people start to see them everywhere once once you start you know looking for them. Right. Yeah, so that's that reminds me of a, of another thing that I've been you know I'm I'm a regular listener to your show as well, and I was thinking about something that that you know, repeatedly strikes me when I listen to your show, how many people who actually talk about uh, various sorts of constraints that you can actually, um, uh, you know, um, uh, apply to your process in various ways. So, you know, one, one episode that, um, that I'm reminded of was with um, Il Waters who talked about, you know, how making uh, websites accessible, you know, for, for people who uh, have all sorts of, or various sorts of, of impairments. And, and she talks about, you know, how making a website accessible actually turns out to make it better overall, because yeah. not only, only are you tar targeting those particular people who may have, you know, difficulty, you know, seeing uh, as a normal person or, you know, with a normal eyesight and so on. But it actually makes it, you know, much more useful to to other people as well. Right. And and I think that's a, that's a pretty interesting observation that, uh, you know, adding an extra constraint actually makes something better. So, um, 
So that's something that I've been, you know, looking out for uh, for the last couple of years, uh, you know, looking for all sorts of constraints and how they make things better. And we did a show with you on constraints in C Sharp, I think, and how just applying them would make you a better programmer. So we did we did a show, um, I think we called it Less is More, which was basically about the constraints that you can, you know, apply to various sorts of programming language features and saying, you know, what if your what if your programming language didn't have that particular feature? What would happen? And um, so that's one of the episodes that we did as well. Yeah. Um, but I think so yeah, just stop me if I'm rambling here. <laughs> no, um, not at all. We want to hear the rambling, please. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, so so what I've, I've been um, thinking about is that there's a lot of constraints that actually turns out that if you start to apply those, uh, things become you know, better or easier in various ways. And this is an idea that goes back, you know, thousands of years. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about, you know, why is, you know, if you take all sorts of epic stories like, um, you know, the um, the ancient Greek uh, stories like the the um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, for example, yeah. and uh, there's the Indian um, epics as well. All of those are basically in, in lyrical form. Uh, you know they're they're on verse. So so if you take the um, the the um, the Iliad for example, it starts something like uh, what what's it? You know, depending on your translation, is something like rage goddess sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles and and stuff like that. Mm. And and why is it the fact that when why are all those things on in, in verse instead of just prose as we you'd normally write you know a, a story today? And and I think uh, as far as I've understood from from people who've been studying those things is that. These stories actually predate, you know, written text. So, right. um, so these were actually, you know, um, oral tradition. So, if you have to tell a story like the the Odyssey or the Iliad, which is like if you print it in a book, it's like five six hundred pages. Right. You can't rem- you can't just remember that, you know, uh, you know, by heart. Um, but by imposing some sort of structure, so saying, well, every verse has to have a particular rhythm, and maybe you even have to have some rhymes in, you know, within those verses. Mm. You make it easier to remember. So the constraint actually makes it, you know, easier to remember the entire, you know, how how the entire story actually flows. Right. right. Yeah. Well, it's the the power of lyricism. It's something about the way your brain records lyrics that's yep. different mm. from just spoken word. Right. So, so, and it, and it helps you remember because if you're the bard who's who's you know telling the story again, you're sort of going like, okay, so what was the next verse? Oh, it was something that has to rhyme on you know blah blah blah, and right. and, and then you sort of figure it out uh, as you go along. Uh, so you see that stuff happening, uh, you know, over and over, and um, uh, you know. So I, I live in Denmark, and and uh, there's been a couple of examples uh, in in Danish culture in the last twenty years that actually uh, have uh, really emphasize this as well there was a a um a wave of cinema called the the Darkman 95 um which uh, started back in 1995 hence the name where some you know movie directors you know sat down and decided to make you know a very specific set of constraints and then they had to go and and make movies based on that constraint huh. and uh, and what actually turned out that that you know these these were people like Lars von Trier, for example, and a couple of other people who actually went on to win various prizes on the Cannes Fil- Film Festival. Um, so probably not something that that most American audiences would know a lot about, but it's actually a pretty big deal in Europe. Well, you see instances of this happening in other mediums too, like you know oh, those yeah, cooking absolutely. competitions where you get uh, yeah. some crazy ingredients like licorice and frogs legs that you actually have to sure. make something out of. Yeah. 
that that was actually the next example that I wanted to pull out because we also have this thing called the new Nordic cuisine, uh, which means uh, you know a sort of semi-French called meaning the new Nordic way of cooking, if mm. you will. Uh, and the idea here again is that you can only use more or less local you know ingredients, and uh, when you have that constraint of only having to you know only being able to use local ingredients, and in you if you're in Denmark or Norway or in Sweden, that's actually a pretty harsh constraint because that means you can't use tomatoes you can't use uh, you know oranges or lemons or you can't even use chocolate on in your desserts and so on so you mm. have to figure out what to do instead so that again turned out to produce uh, you know one of the most famous restaurants in the world called Noma which which is right here in Copenhagen um, because they they did impose that constraint so you know creating a constraint actually gives you a lot of um, it might actually spark a lot of cre- creativity mm. let me press against the 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 constraint <laughs> aspect and look at it a slightly sure. different way. And I, and I think back to what L was talking about with making user interfaces more usable for folks that see and hear differently. Uh, mm-hmm. How much of the benefit comes from the scrutiny rather than the actual constraint that because we focus on it to work within a constraint, we simply do a better job. UI is often emergent. You just sort of do, you know, these are the things that need to be there. Ah, close enough. Where just the consideration of usability in general makes things better. Right. Right. So I'm not a UX expert at all, but I think one of the things that that probably happens there is that, as you said, uh, Richard, uh, the the fact that you have the constraint forces you to consider things that you may not have, you know, otherwise considered. Right. Um, So... Fair enough. Let's bring this back to programming. So, if if I may, though, let's let's start at at a very you know basic level. I and I would point out I did pull the first stanza of the Iliad. So, if you'd like it, I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll happily read it. It is beautiful in its own way. It is mm-hmm. harsh. Yeah, go ahead. Sing, goddess Achilles' rage, black and murderous, that cost the Greeks incalculable pain pitched countless souls of heroes into Hades' dark and left their bodies to rot as feasts for dogs and birds as Zeus's will was done. Heavy stuff, man. And and of course, (laughs) originally written in Greek, so I wonder how different it would sound. But Mm. it's a rage. They're furious at what has happened. It's a poem. I know it's a book, but it's a poem. It's a very long poem. Getting back to your (laughs) comment, Richard, about the constraints and then, you know, how you think about them, I would say that the constraints have to be there in order for you to think about them. True. So, first come yeah, the constraints true. and then comes what you do with them. And yeah, the, what you do with them op- obviously is what uh, results in better software. Yeah. And so, maybe the point is moot. You have to do both. But that's 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 one type of constraint but where the constraints force you to think about things. But there's another type of constraint that relieves the um, the need for thinking about things. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you another question. You know, why are we not all programming in assembly language, for example, or machine language even? Why are we not doing that? Productivity? Yeah, so, okay, so, but let's, so let's, yeah, there's, there's some, some human constraints there. Um, it's difficult to read, right? Yeah. So, okay, so, 
there's also the portability aspect. Uh, so, you know, writing a machine code will only work on a particular machine. But then again, mm-hmm. you know, why are we not just all writing in C, for example? Right. Or or Go, like going as high level as possible. The fact that this diversity of language continues, is right. this actually a failure of our market or is it actually a normal uh, maturity of it? Right. But let's park the Go uh, example just for a moment there and, and, and talk about C. Why are we not all programming in C? I know some people are, are programming in C, but we have other languages that, um, you know, have different qualities than C has. And I think one of the, the, the thing is that C enables you to do all sorts of things. And it also includes thousands ways where you can shoot yourself in the foot basically if you don't do your own (laughs) memory management if you don't do your own threading uh you're you know all that plumbing code you're gonna hurt yourself right so so one of the things we we do is that we say let's let's add a constraint let's say you, you you no longer get to manage your own memory because there's a garbage collector and uh, and that frees up your mind so that you can think about something else Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and 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 i think that's also the reason why we add types you know when we have statically typed languages like c sharp or java for example we Mm -hmm. add some types because we're saying no instead of just thinking about that everything is basically just an integer or pointer which is also sort of an integer right um now you have types so you can say well this is an object of this type and this is an object of that type so so that's actually that's actually a constraint as well would you call um, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around calling a <laughs> runtime with a garbage collector a constraint. I would think that having to do your own memory management would be a, the constraint. But the, the, the being able to do your own memory management is a freedom. You can mm. you can ma- manage the memory exactly how you'd like to do. But is but I understand why you're saying that because it's you know. You have a human constraint that that so there's this um, there's this uh, result from um, cognitive psychology back from the mid 1960s that says you can keep track of about seven different items right. uh, in your head. Yeah. Um, so if you have to keep track of all the memory that you have to manage as well, that sort of takes up precious space in your very limited uh, or all of all of our very limited brains. Mm. So, you know, pushing that aside and saying, well, there's a machine that, that, you know, deals with that for us actually enables us to think about something that's more important than, you know, dealing with the mem- memory. But it is a constraint in the sense that that you are now, you know, um, you, you no longer have the ability to to manage the memory yourself. And in, in most cases, it doesn't really matter, you know, but there are a few cases where if you, if you do, um, you know, uh, guidance software for airplanes or rockets or something like that, you need real-time systems. And then you can't just have your garbage collector coming on in a, you know, non-deterministic right. time and just freezing everything up. So it yeah. is a constraint in that sense that there are, scenarios where you can't live with that constraint uh, and you need to do something else but in most cases like all the enterprise software that we typically tend to write it doesn't really matter so yeah i would i would consider i mean just as a programmer i would consider having a garbage collector as a freedom (laughs) (laughs) because it's freedom to not think about something exactly the same for static typing i need to think about this type once when i declare it i don't have to think about it again and I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah. They're freeing sure. constraints, constraints that free you or liberate yeah, I you. Say, I say constraints liberate exactly because they free your you know, mental processing power to, do, you know, to deal with something that's more important because you can automate all of that stuff away. Mark, hang on right there. Hold that thought while we take just a moment for this very important message. Hey, guess what, Rockheads? 
Progress Telerik wants to send someone to build. So they're having a contest. Step one is to sign up and learn about the new innovative modern UI tools they'll be announcing at Build. By registering, you'll be entered to win a full conference pass to Microsoft Build plus a $500 travel stipend. They're also giving away three Telerik DevCraft UI licenses. And for .NET Rocks listeners, they'll also be giving away a Telerik DevCraft UI license every week. All you have to do is register at buildcontest.pwop.me. That's buildcontest.pwop.me. Progress offers the leading platform for developing and deploying mission-critical business applications. The creator of the award-winning Telerik.net and Kendo UI, JavaScript user interface components and controls, reporting solutions, and productivity tools, Progress offers all the tools developers need to build high-performant modern apps with outstanding UI. Go now to buildcontest.pwop.me and sign up to win. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell talking to Mark Seaman. Yeah, well, that's uh, it, it's a very important thing to, to be able to be free to think about just the problems that you need to solve rather than having to, you know, deal with the ceremony of this particular language feature or that particular feature. That's why Java and C-sharp exist, right? Sure, but, but then you may have noticed that even with languages like Java or C-sharp, all sorts of people have, have invented all sorts of, of extra constraints that you can add on top of those things. So you probably heard about, you know, the solid principles, for example. Sure. And, uh, another one that, that Bertrand Meyer actually came up with back in the mid-80s is one called command query separation. It's a, it's a design principle for object-oriented design. Yeah. And um, are, are you, should we just briefly recap what that is yeah sure for sure uh, yeah so so basically the idea for uh, you know behind command queries separation is that the, that you should separate your methods you know the, the operations you, you call those methods in object-oriented design you should separate them in two groups and you should say that there's one type of method that is a command that changes the state of your system and then you have another type of operation that you know return some data and basically the idea from you know behind command query separation is that you should design your your methods so that they are you know either one or the other but right. they shouldn't do both right. and the and the interesting thing here again is that you know if you look at the c sharp compiler for example it will happily enable you to do something that changes the state of the system and returns some data in in the same go if sure. you will. um so so command query separation is this ex extra constraint you put on top of the language and it may give you some benefits in terms of how easy the code is to to reason about or how easy the code is to read uh, you know once you you get into a you know complicated code base later on um, but it's an extra constraint that you can choose to impose on your code base and say well in this code base we will also apply this command query separation principle on on top of the rules of the compiler for example and yeah. if you do that consistently that will actually impose some benefits on you that that then again frees your processing power uh, and enables you to to think about some more important stuff yep absolutely it, 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 that's eiffel isn't it am i thinking back far enough that no no that's that's absolutely correct uh, Bertrand Meyer was the inventor of the eiffel language and right. and he very specifically uh, 
design the Eiffel language around that particular principle. And uh, there's been various people, you can find an article by Martin Fowler, for example, yeah. where it says it's it's a great principle except when it isn't. Um, <laughs> and it's always like that with the principles. But So I'm not saying you should always follow command query separation, um, but it's an example of a constraint that leads you to, to a place where um, things become more principled and as the design becomes more principled, there's also some things that, you know, because you choose to do it in a particular way and you rule out other, other you know, design options, mm. um, a reader can, you know, better understand what the code does because if he or she understands that this principle is being followed in a particular code base there's things that shouldn't be you know possible right you're, you're actually removing the possibility that particular classes of bugs will creep up in principle yeah yeah absolutely yeah. so if you take this to the extreme you can apply a thing like command query separation and a couple of other principles and that is actually basically what leads you towards this uh, ideal of object-oriented de design that we call encapsulation this you know the the idea of, of encapsulation if you go back to looking at what Bertamaya says about it is that that there should be some sort of contract around that defines how an object should behave and how you interact with it and um and the it's the object's responsibility that that contract is always, um, you know, that it always obeys that that contract. So again, if you if you have that constraint where you say, well, you know, we follow things like command query separation, or we you know adhere to the pre and post conditions that an object you know states that that's part of the contract. That is again a constraint you as as an implementer impose on yourself, but that makes uh, the client uh, developers work much easier to do because now he or she knows that you know when dealing with this particular object there is a set of constraints in place that guides how this whole thing actually works if that makes sense yeah absolutely <laughs> I, of course I, I put my data hat on as soon as i think about cqs uh, and think you know the locking rules of querying are very different from the locking rules of command so, mm -hmm. you know, those separations make my life easier, more reliable, more scalable. Yeah, so th so that's there's a different thing. And, we, and we, I think we should probably make it absolutely clear that we are not talking. Of, so I know that you're not talking about command query responsibility segregation, you know, CQRS. But, but that is sort of like the, and you know, a an extension that you can, you know, you can, you can take CQS, you know, command query separation and, and extend it in that direction. And then you can get an entire, you know, scalable architecture out of right. that. But again, that is a constraint where you impose that and then you get some benefits from actually imposing uh, that particular constraint which i think is interesting yeah again it's like generally speaking we're fighting our reflex is to fight against constraint and mm -hmm. then when you get completely unconstrained you're almost paralyzed by choice yeah and now you know to start thinking in terms of actually when i put constraints around me that are intelligent i'm more productive i i clear a bunch of stuff out of my head that i no longer have to think about to uh, to be able to to build stuff that people actually need Right. So, so another example of so you mentioned Go before, and I'm not an expert in Go at all. I just know uh, that the neither am I. But I, I was just picking a high level modern language out of the sky. Yes, absolutely. But one of the constraints, as far as I understand, with Go is that it it is a language that is targeted at being you know fairly low level in the sense that you can write some pretty performant code uh, mm -hmm. with it. But instead of of you know working with a threading model, it it basically takes the old idea of coroutines and they 
called it go routines, I think, something like that. But it, it creates a different model of, of parallelization that is also sort of a constraint in the sense you can't just do, you know, arbitrary threading. Right. Uh, you have a very specific model of how you do parallelism or concurrency in that. So I'm hoping that I'm not saying something that is completely wrong here. But that's that's the way I've always thought about that. Go yeah. as well, yeah. is that its yeah. focus was on the parallelism side. And it's a very mm-hmm. late coming language. I mean, like two th- mm-hmm. the, the late 2000s. Because all the CPUs at the time were parallel. We had multiple cores. Like that was the norm. I appreciated the idea that, hey, let's start building tools based on the reality that we're in a multi-core world now and that your reflex, your default behavior of a language should be effective with multiple cores, which is not the, you know, C was never built that way. And even C sharp, as much as we love it, predates the commonality of multi-core machines and the CLR as well. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think it's like you've invented a new word for war, you know, start building and start having a different kind of war. Yeah, so that reminds me. So, Richard, you're doing the history of .NET. Uh, I've noticed uh, you you talked about that. So I have an old copy, the first edition of the Framework Design Guidelines. You probably know that book as well right. uh, by Brad Abrams and, and, and Christoph Swalina. And I noticed that you know, so it's annotated by all sorts of people who were, you know, took part in the design of the .NET framework originally. And, and they sort of, some of them come in and say, well, there's this design here, but it's actually not really particularly threat safe. And then they sort of went with, that particular design anyway because even back then you know in the mid uh, in the start 2000s threading was not really the, the main concern not there. At all, it was right. just, yeah so they sort of knew that that it could become a problem but it, they had other concerns like just general usability and you know how easy the language was to pick up uh, which was much more you know a concern for them than actually making it thread safe yeah i mean in the early 90s when they're working on or late 90s when they're working on this mm-hmm. thing Microsoft's for the first time in their existence inventing their own language. They've always taken other people's languages and implemented them. Mm, and they're sure. trying to make something, you know, I've come to appreciate Bill Gates was an object-oriented language believer mm-hmm. and he wanted something very pure in the sense that everything was an object. And that was a a push. That was a hard thing to do. But one of the fundamental distinctions between Java and C Sharp in those early days, and one of the reasons that guys like Mad Torgensen and so forth got involved, were the concepts, again, not of parallelism, but of generics, of anonymous types. Java was trying to solve those problems in the late 90s, early aughts, and was struggling with them. Mm-hmm. And they got a chance to bootstrap that from the very beginning, although they didn't get it into one, but mm-hmm. by two, they'd laid down really solid foundations around those particular problems. But they're problems we don't think about anymore. Wasn't it on Syme that did generics? Yes, Syme, Eric Meyer, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, Anders was involved as well, uh, Mads. Sure was brought into Microsoft because he was working on it on Java <laughs> and, uh, and they, they really <laughs> liked what he, you know, way he was thinking about it and, and, and got him involved there. Like all of these folks, it's interesting that the serious thinkers about language at that period were all struggling with this particular issue hmm. of this, of hmm. the concepts around generics and so forth. Yeah. Even though again, they didn't make, yep. they, you wouldn't really see a manifest until 2005 and ultimately 2008 that was what was on their minds. Fascinating. And they needed to set a foundation to make that come true. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? It must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's happy, all right. It's time to tell a joke with some interesting constraints. 
It must include motor oil, dill pickle slices, two bananas, and a plucked <laughs> live chicken. Ah, never mind. That list was funny enough. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I was looking at it thinking, had- oh, you mean Saturday. <laughs> the, okay. What, what just went through your mind was hilarious. Trust me. <laughs> I had hoped for a haiku, though. <laughs> oh, 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 at least a limerick. You could have made a limerick. <laughs> ah, I didn't have that kind of time. <laughs> I couldn't make up a Anyway. Well, it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from our friends at DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. You know, everyone knows that DevExpress has great desktop controls, but their web tools are just simply amazing. They have this collection of HTML5 JavaScript controls called DevExtreme. At the heart of the product line are these really powerful controls like grid, chart, pivot grid, tree list, and scheduler. But DevExtreme also comes with more than 50 touch-optimized client-side controls, data visualizers, navigators, editors, lists, dialogues, and notification controls, and general-purpose controls like a filter builder, range slider, file uploader, scroll view, and more. Now, since they're all HTML5, JavaScript, CSS, they include integrations with things like jQuery, Knockout, React, Ionic, and Angular. Plus, DevExtreme controls come with ASP.NET MVC, and ASP.NET Core wrappers, so they're infinitely flexible. But don't take our word for it. Go for a test drive at dx.netrocks.com. That's dx.netrocks.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Mark Costello. Congratulations, yeah. Mark. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Mark. Mark just won the D Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends over there at DevExpress, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to join, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, and answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club, but you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guests, Mark, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? You know, I'd probably take the money and put it, um, you know, aside for later on um, to buy a new laptop sooner or later. Oh, um, nice. I'm, I'm basically on a six years old uh, you know, Lenovo X1 Carbon at the moment. So, um, ah. um, and that's another constraint. Um, yeah. I think it's actually quite interesting to see, you know, just how old this machine can get and still be uh, workable. <laughs> Before it's a laboratory experiment. It, it sort of is, but there's a couple of interesting things about it. For the, you know, One of them is that, you know, compared to modern computers, it's starting to get a little bit slow, which mm. means that if you ha- have a slow development computer, you're really forced to do something that is fairly efficient. And you'd also have to make your, you know, the, the processes and the way you work with things fairly efficient and and another thing is that, that i've noticed that often when you ask people this question is that they want you know bigger monitors and i've been working with my laptop monitor since you know not only with this machine but also with previous laptops so i've basically just been programming on laptops since 1999 something like that hmm. um and the, the the thing that happens when you only have the laptop monitor is that you're sort of forced to compartmentalize your code in such a way that you can't have that much code on a screen at any, any given time. So it's sort of, you know, really 
strongly you know suggests to you you know you know if if you're writing a method uh, that becomes too long it becomes very clear that it is too long you know i remember so in you had an episode with i think it was steve smith um, fairly recently when where he talked about pain driven development yes right uh, the the idea is that if you're starting to feel pain you should do something about it and and having a small screen makes it very pain- painful if you have long methods so you should probably you 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 know naturally want to do something about that as as soon as possible Oh, dude! I've solved my my long method problem by just getting a bigger monitor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing. But yeah, I've I've met lots of other people who have, you know, in my opinion, far too high a pain thresholds. Where it's sort of like, how can <laughs> right. you do? How can you live with that? That's horrible. <laughs> right. Right. But I've certainly talked to people who are like, I prefer to develop on my laptop, so I yeah. don't get used to a bigger screen. Like that's the way I just work with things. So that's that's my preference as well. But but now we're talking so we're talking about Steve Smith's uh, and his uh, episode that you had recently. It was another thing that I was remi- reminded of there. So he talked about clean architecture, and one of the things that that he was talking about is how um, he tends to um, you know create various modules. So he has like for example a domain model, and the domain model contains all the interfaces, and then he may have you know a, a, an interface. Uh, an infrastructure uh, module, I think he called it, where he has, for example, his, his database implementations. And that database implementation implements the interfaces that the domain model defines. Right. And and he sort of, I, and I think he, he knew this, but he, I just think he forgot to, to tell you. But one of the benefits that this sort of architecture gives you is exactly it, it imposes a constraint uh, because by having the interfaces defined in a domain model and then, you know, referencing that domain model from your implementation you have a, a um, you have a you know a project reference going from your data access library to your domain model so if you ever want to if you ever try to add the reference to the data access layer from your domain model that would give you a circular reference which mm. you know for example you know a tool like um, visual studio will not allow you so, so that is again, you know, the reason I think the underlying reason why people have that sort of architecture is exactly because it does enforce that constraint that you can't have circular references. So, by picking, you know, the direction of the references, you know, up front, you now have tooling that enforces the, that constraint for you, uh, so that you don't get all of those, you know, circular references instead. When I think about the ultimate constraint in programming, I think about functional programming, right? Because mm-hmm. it has yep. so many constraints built into the language, you know, built into the, the, the architecture of the languages that you, you just, certain things you just can't, it's impossible to do. It's impossible to have a null reference exception. Exactly. So that depends a little bit on exactly which functional programming language uh, that you um, that you that you pick. Uh, but you know, we also did an episode on on Haskell uh, a couple of episodes back. Well, last time I was guest, um, and Haskell actually does have that you know those constraints that you can't have null references, for example. Mm-hmm. You also can't have you know you can't mutate state unless you have very specific you know type annotations that enable you to do that anyway. Right. Um, so. You know, thinking back to a constraint like command query separation, for example, that Bertrand Meyer's, uh, you know, constraint there, you know, sometimes when I try to teach people, you know, just object-oriented developers to apply the command query separation principle, um, 
sometimes they come up with all sorts of, of, of examples or counter examples where they say, well, we can't, you know, we can't apply command query separation in, uh, in this particular scenario because blah, 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 blah. And what I always, uh, what I always have the experience is that it just you just need to think about the problem in a different way. Sure. And and basically what I what I always tell them is, but you can always apply the command query separation principle to all code. And then people say, but how do you know that? Hmm. Well, I know that because I know that Haskell is a Turing complete language, and it's basically all queries. You know, if you if you look at command query separation, it has made the extreme separation of saying, you know, there are no commands; there are just all queries. So it's a it you know you basically just push um, the slider all the way towards you know saying no commands all queries and then you still have a two incomplete language. So if that's possible, that must mean that you know at at least at one extreme you can always apply the command query separation because you just do all queries and that still works. <laughs> so if a query can take an input, mm-hmm. and and that's what I think of when I think of a command. I think of you know we're we're telling the computer something, we're giving the computer something, we're issuing a statement, we're sending data in. Mm-hmm. Um, so doesn't a query just become a function if if there's no commands and there's just queries? If you can can if you can send input into that query, which you have to, it's a query. Doesn't that just become a function? So the difference between functions and queries is that a query is something that returns data often based on some input that you give it. And when you're talking about functional programming, the extra constraint you put on a function in order for it to be, you know, a real function, if you will, is that not only must it, you know, be um, deterministic, so it, you can't have any sort of randomness going on mm. inside of it, but but also you can't change state. So so basically what Bertram Meyer talked about already was that he said queries cannot change the state of the system because that's only for commands to do. Right. So we add the extra constraint when we were talking about functional programming is to say not only can it not change state, but it must also be not you know deterministic. So you can't have any sort of random stuff happening inside uh, of a of a pure function as they as they're called. So if Haskell is only queries and no commands, how does anything ever get saved? Yeah, isn't that interesting? (laughs) 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 So so they have this little trick um, called I.O. And basically I.O. is, is, you know, you probably heard the the word monad and we should probably not go deeply into that right now. But but it's sort of like the uh, one of the ways that you can think about what I.O. is, it's sort of you probably heard about um, Schrodinger's cat, you know, this whole sure. idea from from quantum mechanics where you say you put a cat in a box um, with some poison and then there's a, you know, some random um, radioactive decay thing that yeah. may... 50-50 you know, trigger. Yeah, yeah. So maybe the poison... Uh, kills the cat and maybe that doesn't happen and it's truly random because it's based on some sort of radioactive decay and then you don't know whether the cat is, is dead or alive so the uh, the one interpretation of, of of io is that it's sort of like a box like that so if you have a function that returns you know l- like say an io of int it's a box that contains an integer but you don't know which integer it is. It's like just like the, the box with the cat inside of it is a super superposition of all possible states in the universe. The IO of int in Haskell is also, that's one interpretation, is sort of like a superposition of all the possible integers that it could be. And it's only when you when you sort of look in the box that you actually know which integer it is. But looking into the box makes 
makes everything, you know, changes the rules of, of the game, basically. It, it makes everything impure. You can only do that if you're already in, in the impure context. That's that's probably a little bit of a, of a different discussion that I'll see right now. And I still now, have no it, idea. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't think there was already quantum computers, and then you met Haskell. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like quantum mechanics. How hard can it be? Uh, how hard no can problem. it be? I did a whole show on quantum mechanics with Richard. I still don't know what the hell we talked about. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think I think that that basic quote of if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. So, um, but but you know, there's, there's lots of things um, that you know constraints are everywhere, and and if you design with them, I think we can actually do something that are really interesting. You know, um, one of the other things that I figured out is that lots of people who are trying to understand dependency injection, you know, I, I wrote a book about that, you know quite a few years back so uh, i often get those questions about how do you do this and how do you do that and often the question is in context of some sort of dependency injection container and what i typically tend to tell them is you know the, the dependency injection container doesn't really make it easier for you it actually makes it harder uh, so if you make the if you give yourself the constraint saying don't use a dependency injection container mm -hmm. when you do dependency injection things actually will become easier. So again, you know, at a, at a certain level, you can see that as a constraint saying, well, you should use the dependency in injection, but you should do it without a container. Yeah. And by imposing that constraint, things actually become easier for you because one of the things that happens when you do dependency injection with a DI container is, first of all, often people don't really understand exactly how it works. So it's sort of like a magic box that they don't really understand. So by taking away the magic box, you're sort of forced to understand how dependency injection works in principle instead of it just being some sort of magic thing that's, that's over in the corner. But another thing that also happens is that that actually when you use a dependency injection container, what often happens is that you have things that you will often have things that compile, but then when you try to run them, you didn't configure the DI container correctly, and then you get all sorts of runtime errors because uh, now you get you know an exception that says, well, you try to get you know an, an instance of this interface ifoo, but I have no registered you know component for ifoo, so therefore I'm now throwing an exception. Whereas if you don't use a DI container, um, you actually have to wire things up by hand, uh, and that means that if you if you didn't do that correctly, the compiler will simply complain and say, "Well, you know, you didn't you didn't compose your object graph correctly, right. so um, yeah, it doesn't compile." Yeah. So now you get you know faster feedback. So again, you know, imposing that constraint, not using a DI container, actually makes things see, uh, simpler. You must have a list of con your favorite constraints that you uh, wish all developers could impose on themselves. <laughs> oh, I have, I have plenty. So basically, you know, I, I really, you know, a lot of the constraints, we already talked about that, but a lot of the constraints actually lead towards functional programming. So this is why I'm really happy about functional programming, because if you take, you know, if you take things like command query separation and saying, well, all that mutation is actually something that makes it really, really hard to reason about programming. So if we take it, if we impose the constraint that we say, we say we can't do uncontrolled arbitrary um, mutation, then that you know some things become easier to to reason about so that's that's one of the things that i think is really is really uh, useful um yeah but there's all sorts of, of interesting things you can do another thing is you know uh, we talked about a little bit about di containers already but also what what you often 
see people do with dependency injection is that one of the reasons why they, they um, start doing dependency injection is because they uh, they want to do some sort of unit testing. And um, when you use dependency injection, the way that you can use unit testing, again, is by using those dynamic mocks, like, you know, uh, fake it easy or MOQ or mm. um, what are they all called? Uh, so they sort of go hand in hand. If you're using dependency injection, you basically also need to do those things. Um, but one of the interesting things about, again, if you start to, to looking at, um, you know, not having all sorts of non-deterministic behavior in your code and not having arbitrary state mutation in your code is that you when you push your code towards something that is more functional, it also becomes much easier to, to unit test because you don't have all of those dependencies. Uh, so if you can sort of push the dependencies away, so what you know what functional programmers often talk about is they push the dependencies towards the boundary of the system so all the business logic all the domain logic you end up implementing is sort of as you know free of dependencies as possible it also becomes much easier to unit test so again you know sure. you could sort of you just have the constraint and saying well maybe i should try to design the system so that i don't need, need stops and marks mm -hmm. and then it might actually become you know the code might actually be be better uh, all by itself you know, that's churned up in our conversation about test-driven development is that your tendency to write tests first changes the way you implement the code Absolutely. to make yes. it more testable. Yeah. So, you know, it's exactly the same thing. You've applied a constraint of I need to write tests. And right away, you, you, you I, I don't know. The question is, did you write better code? Or hmm. is it just more testable? You know, the implication, of course, is that more testable is, is better. So I actually did an experiment uh, of sort of, uh, not a really scientific experiment, but like 10 years ago, I, I started with that greenfield development in a job that I had back then. And I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to see, you know, what does test-driven development actually do if I basically just, you know, do it as it's described. So, you know, write the test first and not really thinking too hard about what happened, but just sort of see where that led me. And and what I figured out is that if I sort of switched off my critical thinking and just did TDD, you know, the mechanics of TDD without really, you know, critical thinking, uh, it didn't really leave me, lead me a good, uh, in a good direction. So right. I, had, I end, ended up with code that was very testable. I think I probably had like 95 or 100%, uh, you know, code coverage. Um, but the design wasn't nice. Uh, because the process it, it in itself doesn't lead to good design. It's just like a feedback mechanism uh, that, you know, if you think of a design, then you write a test and then you get feedback on whether that design was a good idea or not. And often what happens is that, you know, that test tells you, oh, that design idea was actually not a good idea. And then you go, okay, uh, I need to do something else. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, but another thing we can, uh, another thing that I've found interesting is that, you know, we talked about um, that episode uh, 1001 where we talked about flow. Yes. And um, what I've found is that, um, it sometimes actually is is um, flow can actually be dangerous. So another constraint that I'm beginning to that I've used the last couple of years is that um, I deliberately impose breaks uh, in my um, in my work. So you you may be fam familiar with this thing called the Pomodoro technique, where oh, you, sure. you you know you you go for 25 uh, minutes and then you have a five minute break, and 
you know, originally I started using the Pomodoro technique because I had, you know, sometimes I had, you know, lots of things that I didn't want to do. So it was just a, a way to force me to, to you know, get this, the, the stuff done. Uh, but I'm more and more beginning to use the Pomodoro even when I'm programming because I think every program has probably tried this thing where flow is nice sometimes because you just, you know, you're just coding and coding and coding and five hours pass and you sort of feel very productive. But what also often happens is that you get stuck in something where you have this problem and you can't really get out of it and you're sort of in a rut. Yep. And uh, what I found is that, you know, I have this rule with my Pomodoro now that when, when the break you know, alarm goes off, I have to get out of my chair and I have to leave the room. Right. So some, you know, some, sometimes I, I basically just step over my threshold and then go back into my chair. But just the fact that I need to, you know, something happens with your brain when you step over a threshold, when you, when you walk through a door. Hmm. So this, this something very, very strange happens that often, you know, it's like, um, it sort of breaks the rut, if you will. So sure. you probably heard about this this other idea. Um, there's a print. There's a process called rubber ducking, um, yeah. where where you tell the problem to a rubber duck, or you can also use it <laughs> yep. if you don't. If you don't have a rubber duck, duck typing, but they're like, okay, no, I'll tell the problem to a rubber duck. <laughs> no, just the act of talking about it. Yeah, brings it to light. Yeah. So if you don't have a rubber duck, you can also use a colleague. But um, but basically, just the the act of actually trying to you know say out loud what the problem is will often get you to a, a point where you realize by yourself oh that's the problem this is why i'm i've been stuck for for three hours so by imposing the constraint of saying i have to take a break every 25 minutes um i often get out of the rut you know within at least 25 minutes so yeah. i don't you know waste three hours on that which i might do otherwise there's also some really good um science behind brain fatigue after you know 15 to 20 minutes mm -hmm. if you're just if you're just constantly focused on something for so long you really do need to just do something else or think about think about anything like think about star yeah. trek for five or ten seconds or whatever just something completely yeah. different and then go back in i love walking the dog yeah yep I get I get most of my work done when I'm not in front of my computer actually and just you know going for a run or whatever um, it, I get all my good ideas on my bicycle or you know I'm in Copenhagen I ride my bicycle yeah, all the yeah. time <laughs> writing things down also making lists and writing things down oh, yeah, is a absolutely. great tool yeah. for clarity yeah Simple things. So, so that's also often what I t tell people as well. You know, get away from the computer um, because that might be another constraint that you can impose on yourself. You say, they're saying you shouldn't be in front of your computer more than, you know, whatever works for you. Yeah. But, but have a particular limit for that. Uh, when I was listening to another podcast, and I think it was about um, the, the benefits of waiting. <laughs> it started with yeah. a guy who said that he was an investor at a startup and these guys were going to start in six months, right? They're going to have their website up in six months. And this guy gave them a whole bunch of money and there was never any progress and never any progress. And they, it turns out they had spent the whole six months thinking about a name for the company. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> and and they hadn't come up with it because you know it, that's a lot that's a lot like branding is the domain available like all these things are really important and so you know six months come around and the guy's like hey man where's the website you know where's everything and they're like well we're still kind of thinking about it and he was kind of really mad you know 
And it turns out that it did take them another month or two to get things going, but it, it also turned out to be like a ridiculously successful company. And from that <laughs> point on, the guy was like, you know what? Things don't need to happen right away. It's more important that we do things right and take our time than, uh, than to, then, you know, just be quickly. speeding around. Yeah. 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 It's funny how that works out. And, and I've seen, I've, been, I've seen both philosophies, both very viable. Yeah. I guess it matters who you're, who you're investing in. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so Mark, is there anything else that you want to talk about? I mean, it sounds like we could go out for a, a beer and talk constraints forever. I mean, it sounds like you've got a lot more up your sleeve, but, uh, is there anything else that you want to, wanted to bring up? Uh, well, um, so I think if, if people are interested, they can always go and visit my blog and basically yeah. find lots of things that I talk and write about all sorts of things. I have a video series on um, on uh, clean coders that's called Humane Code, which is basically talking about the cognitive constraints that we have. So again, I talked about this um, result from cognitive psychology that you can only keep track of about seven different items at, right. at a given time. Uh, so that is a constraint that we have with our brains and we sort of need to figure out how to deal with the cognitive constraints when we are writing code or basically when we're reading code sure. uh, so if people are interested they can always go uh, go there and um, watch my video series which costs money and makes me money so that's why i, I talk about that <laughs> <laughs> very good mark thanks it's always enlightening talking to you and i'm looking forward to seeing you at ndc this year yeah you too all right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time boy. Life is hard. Pay my